to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just to remind you, we were doing a brief mini-series really in 2 Corinthians when Christmas came and we paused that and we did a couple of sermons on Christmas and now we are back uh, planning to spend this Sunday and next Sunday in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. After this Sunday and next Sunday, we plan to return to the Gospel of Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 where we were in the Lord's Prayer. Some of what we will discuss today will come back in a few weeks when we get to uh, the Sermon on the Mount again. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm really just going to be preaching one single verse, which is verse 10 today, but I want to read the context to remind us of where we are. So I'm going to start back in chapter 4, verse uh, verse 16, and read through chapter 5, verse 11. This is the Word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 5, 11. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens." For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Let's pray again briefly together. Heavenly Father, as we really spend the whole sermon discussing final judgment, uh, Lord, I pray that we would not leave with confusion. It it is very easy to get tripped up in our thinking about some of these issues. It, It is very easy to go astray on this topic, especially in the relationship between our good works and deeds as believers and our right standing before You, which is by grace alone. So God, I pray that You would help us to see what is really in Your Word on this issue, and that You would clear away confusion, and that we would leave with a better uh, sight of what is true and what Your Word teaches. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes around New Year's uh, Day, we have a sermon that touches on kind of how we're living, how we're using either our time or thinking about things of eternal significance in a kind of unique way, and this text fits in perfectly with that idea. I would like to discuss today the the final judgment, which is talked about throughout Scripture, and it's going to be a little bit more of a topical sermon in the sense of I just have one verse, and so I'm going to be going outside of my text to, to show you more of what the Bible says about this issue. But I do have a fear, like I prayed, that, that there could be confusion uh, in this particular message. 
So I want to see if you can sense the tension. It's not, I don't think it's a real tension, but it can be an apparent tension in the text. And I just want to show you two verses in this chapter and see if you can sense at least an apparent tension that we need to talk about. So let's read our main text one more time. This is 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, do you hear that? If that's the only verse in the Bible you had, you would think we were saved by works. I mean, if that's all you had, that would be a very easy conclusion to say, well, okay, at the end of the day, those who've done good deeds will be saved because they're good, and those who've done evil deeds will be lost because they're bad. And so, obviously, the Bible teaches salvation by works. Please don't leave the service just yet, if that's all you've heard, okay? <laughs> let's hang on just a second. Now, let's look at chapter 5, verse 21. Same chapter, same author, same flow of thought. 521, for our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we know this verse, right? If you've been around our church, you know that verse, the great exchange, that our sin was given to Jesus, and on the cross, He bore our sin. He bore the punishment and the wrath that we deserve for our sin, and it took it away. And we now become righteous in Christ. So so listen, when Jesus was on the cross, He never sinned, but He was counted as sin. How? By our sin, being counted as His. He was not a sinner, but He was credited or counted as a sinner and treated accordingly. God judged Him for sin that we committed, not He Himself, right? And then it turns around in the verse and it says that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We are not perfectly righteous. No one in this room is perfectly righteous, and yet we are counted perfectly righteous because Christ's righteousness covers us. Everybody got that? That's the basic message of Christianity. Now, that has to cohere and fit with what Paul just said in chapter 5, verse 10, that judgment will be according to works, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And just, I'm going to start by trying to give you my conclusion, because it's confusing, and then I'm going to work backwards, okay? So, uh, we're going to emphasize works very strongly today, and I want you to understand the context in in which we're talking about our good deeds as believers. So, one way to say it, not original to me, our good works are the fruit of our right standing with God, not the root. Our good deeds are the fruit or evidence of our right standing with God, they're not the root. Christ's good works are the root of our right standing with God. Now, if you can get that one idea, you got the whole sermon, I think. So, Christ's perfect life, His perfect righteousness is the root of our right standing with God. It is the basis of our right standing with God. It is the foundation of our right standing with God. It is our right standing with God. We are right with God, not because we are sinless, but because Christ was sinless in our place, because Christ died in our place. Now, if I truly know Christ, if I have been born again, if I have a new nature, the same passage, look, look at verse 17. If I'm a new creation, look at verse five, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If I know Christ and I have been born again, if I am a new creation in Christ by His Spirit and all by grace, is that going to affect the way that I live my life? 
day in, day out, week in, and week out? The answer is yes, and it's not an optional yes. It's not a, well, it does for some people, yes. If you truly know the Lord Jesus, it is going to fun, fundamentally change your life. You are a new creation in Christ. Not sinlessly perfect yet, but fundamentally a different human being. And that transformation, that change, is going to produce a change of life, a change of the fruit of our life. It's going to change our actions, our behavior, our loves, our longings, and those actions validate that our faith is real. Our good deeds, our transformed life by the Spirit in Christ, our new creation, our new self, validates, gives evidence that we truly are born again. Does that make sense? So our good deeds don't save us, they are the proof that we are saved. Does that, does that make sense? Our good deeds do not save us, but they are the necessary evidence and proof that we are already transformed and saved by Christ. So I've got four points. For those who are note takers, I'll give them to you right now. I tried my best to make these short. I don't know if I succeeded. So judgment is according to works, and then I've got four points that go with that statement. So judgment is according to works. Number one, for everyone. Judgment is according to works, number one, for everyone. Number two, judgment is according to works regarding salvation or condemnation. Judgment is according to works regarding salvation or condemnation. Number three, judgment is according to works regarding rewards and punishments. Regarding rewards and punishments. And number four, judgment is according to works for God's public vindication. So again, the four phrases are for everyone. Number one. Number two, regarding salvation or condemnation. Number three, regarding rewards and punishments. And number four, for God's public vindication. So point number one, judgment is according to works for everyone. Now, I just have to say... I don't even know who I'm, this isn't going to be a rant, I don't think. I don't even know who exactly I'm talking about, but I, I think it's just in the air. What can often happen with Christians, we've all been guilty of this if we've been a Christian for a while, we get a concept in our head that's basically biblically correct, but not totally correct. And we have this concept, it might be the concept of grace, we have this concept of grace. And we will use this concept that's partly biblical, partly not quite biblically accurate, and we will use it to silence clear passages in the Bible. Here's what I mean. Very often we think, well, we're saved by grace, so there's no role of works, of our works in the final judgment. If I know Christ, I'm saved by grace, not works, so my works are irrelevant when it comes to the final judgment. That would be a faulty inference. You see? You say, I'm saved by grace, which is true, therefore my works will not, be, will not in any way be brought up at final judgment. That's, in, that's a false inference from a concept. You follow that? So, I'm just going to soak you in passages because I want to prove to you I'm not making this up. Every time, I've said this before, but I've never read the text. And I'm just going to read a list. I, I, this time I was like, I've got to read the whole thing. I've got to read all of them. Well, not all of them, a lot of them. I've said this before from the pulpit. I've said, every time final judgment is talked about in the Bible, it's always, every time, according to works. Both Testaments. And I've never actually read the litany of passages. So here we go. You ready? Here, here are the, I'm, just, I'm not making this up. You won't have time to turn to all these Romans 14, 10 through 12, for we will all stand before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of, Christ, of God, 
Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul wrote that to a church. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Peter 1.17, God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Matthew 12.36, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's an amazing sentence. On the last day, on the judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Even Ecclesiastes has this theme. Remember the ending of Ecclesiastes? The end of the matter, has all, uh, the end of the matter is here, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We know Jeremiah 17, 9 here, the heart is deceitful above all things. I had totally forgotten about Jeremiah 17, 10, the very next verse. Listen to this. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Hebrews 4.13, we know Hebrews 4.12, the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, exposing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The next verse, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 13.17, now this applies to church elders in particular, which is a frightening verse. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to Give an account. That's to all pastors. Matthew 16, uh, 27, Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Romans 2, 16, Paul speaks of that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I'm just warming up here. No, I got, I got several more texts. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will, give, will receive his commendation from God. 2 Timothy 4, 14, referring to an unbeliever, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 1 Peter 1, 17, God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Revelation 2.23, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches heart and mind, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's written from Jesus to a church. I will give to each of you according to your works. Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14. I know there's debate about this passage, but I'll include it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Here's the last one. Some of Jesus' last words in the whole Bible. Revelation 22:12. 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, I hope it's a very clear point. Whatever we do with it, we've got to deal with this. Is it clear in the Bible that everyone, believer and an unbeliever, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, His ruling throne. We will stand there, and every single person will give an account for every careless word. We will give account for our lives. We will, our, our works will be there, and we will be judged in accordance with our works. Do you see me getting this clearly from the Bible? Okay, so don't let our concept of grace erase these verses. But at the same time, don't let these verses erase grace. Okay, we've got to deal with this apparent tension. How do we put these things together here. Let's make a footnote. 
I know not everyone will agree with this. I say this with love and compassion, but just I got to mention this in reference to these different judgment scenes. I'm quoting Wayne Grudem. In a dispensationalist view, there are different judgments. Number one, there's a judgment of believers' works, sometimes called the Bema Seat, which is our text today, uh, in which Christians will receive degrees of reward. Number two, in the dispensational view, there's a judgment of the nations, which is the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, to determine who enters the millennial kingdom. Number three, there's a great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, to declare eternal uh, punishments only for unbelievers in that text. And Grudem says of himself, and I agree with him, the view taken in this book is that these three passages all speak of the same final judgment, not of three separate judgments. So we can agree to disagree on that point. I just want to make my stance clear on that. I believe all these final judgment scenes are one and the same. I believe it's one singular final judgment event that will precede the new creation. Uh, but even if you disagree with me on that point, we still have these texts to deal with either way, whenever they occur. So moving into my second main point of the message, judgment is according to works regarding salvation or condemnation. This is where things could get very confusing. I, I, I want you to listen carefully. Judgment is according to works regarding salvation or condemnation. Let's look at our text for today again. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I would like to argue here that the words good and evil are referring to all people. And I'm arguing that good is referring to the good deeds of genuine believers and that evil here is referring to actual moral evil. Some people oppose that position, but I really think it is that. Let me give you a quick argument for why that is and why I think it matters. The the word here, okay, for what is done in the body, good or evil, the word evil here, okay, the word phallos, the, the word is used six times in the New Testament. Every single other time, it clearly refers to moral evil. And let me give you a very important cross-reference for this passage. It's John chapter 5. In fact, you can turn there real quick. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The reason this is an important cross-reference is because this is the only… Well, this text very clearly uses those two terms together in the same kind of context. And I think it sheds light on 2 Corinthians 5. This is Jesus speaking, John 5. Verses 28 and 29, he's going to use the exact same Greek words, good and evil, that Paul used in our text. So let's, let's see how Jesus uses the words. John 5, 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's believers, and those who have done evil, phallos, same Greek word, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, do you see here? Those who have done good are saved. They are raised to life. Those who have, been, who have done evil are raised to judgment. So, there's two different resurrections. You have the resurrection of those who are saved and the resurrection of those who are lost or who are cast into the lake of fire. And those who are raised to life, their lives were characterized by good deeds, transformed lives by the Spirit of God, evident fruit of the Spirit that has been worked in their life, and on the other side, those who are marked or characterized by phallos, the word for evil here, they are resurrected to judgment. So I believe that the the works are meant to distinguish who is saved and who is ultimately lost. And yet this doesn't contradict the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. If you're in John 5, look at verse 24. 
It's amazing that these verses fall so closely together. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. That's the doctrine of salvation by faith alone apart from works. Do you hear that? Whoever believes has eternal life right now. You're saved by faith alone, not by works. The moment you believe, you have eternal life. And then a few verses later, Jesus says what? Those who are raised for salvation are those who do good works. Now, do you feel the the tension here? Jesus is teaching the same thing Paul teaches, same thing James teaches, same thing Peter teaches. He's teaching what? That we are made right with God by faith only in the finished work of Jesus. If I trust Christ, no matter what my life has looked like, no matter how sinful or self-righteous or whatever my background has been, the moment I put my my faith in Christ, that moment I have eternal life. That moment I am right with God. That moment I am forgiven. And then the Spirit enters my life and transformation begins to occur and my life is going to be different and that different transformed, changed life is going to be evidence on the final day that I truly knew Jesus and that I truly was saved. So my good works are going to be a real and necessary evidence that my faith in Christ was genuine. My good works will not be perfect and neither will yours in that regard, but they will be real and necessary evidence that Christ has transformed my heart. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, to your right. Ephesians chapter 2, I think this text is is similarly clear on this kind of idea. Ephesians 2, very well-known passage, but it relates to what we're speaking of. Starting in uh, verse 8, Ephesians 2, 8. Now, look at these two concepts, again, side by side. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we love that verse, don't we? Can that be any more clear? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by our own works, not our own doing. Nothing we have done, nothing we've done at all is going to be what, what makes us, in this case, right with God. But then look at verse 10. Let's not leave out verse 10. Now that we know Christ, look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, do you hear it? We are not saved by our good works but we are saved unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So, good works don't save us, but good works are the evidence that we're saved. Good works do not save us, but they are the evidence that we are truly saved. Let me take you to another passage. Turn to Matthew 12, so back to your left here, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, again, speaking on this idea says the following, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. See, there, the fruit is the evidence of what kind of tree you're dealing with. If there are Delicious oranges growing on the branches of the tree. You can call it an apple tree all you want, but it's not an apple tree because the fruit makes it known. What kind of tree it is is evident in the fruit growing on the branches. 
The fruit shows you what kind of tree it is down to its core. It is the clear evidence of what kind of tree you're dealing with. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now again, we don't want to blot this verse out of the Bible if it doesn't immediately fit my thinking here. We need to take this with absolute seriousness. Jesus is not kidding. He's speaking sincerely. So what Jesus is saying here is He's saying that our works are what save us. No, He's saying that our works reveal our heart, right? Our works reveal our heart. The fruit on the branches tells you what kind of tree it is. If there's beautiful apples on the tree branches, you know it's an apple tree down to its core. And if there are words that honor the Lord, words that speak well of Jesus, that come from a heart that loves Christ, that are on our lips, not perfectly, not perfectly all the time, but a real love for Jesus, evident in the way we speak and act, that is fruit that bears witness to the fact that we are, have a new nature deep down, that we have been transformed. And our words will either, as evidence, validate or invalidate our claim to know Christ on the last judgment. So, point number two was, judgment is according to works regarding salvation and condemnation. Point number three, judgment is according to works regarding rewards and punishments. Regarding rewards and punishments. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I sometimes get asked about this in, in my high school class sometimes, which is a great question. People, students will sometimes ask me, are there degrees of rewards of, uh, in heaven for those who know Christ, and are there degrees of punishment for those in hell in the Bible? Is that taught in the Bible? And I, I will just say I really do believe, yes, the Bible teaches both of those things. I'll try to prove that in a, in a moment here. But let, let me make an important distinction. The degrees of punishment for those who perish in their sin their degrees of punishment are earned or merited degrees of punishment. In other words, they are getting exactly what they deserve or what I would have deserved apart from Christ. So my sinful deeds get exactly what they deserve with degrees of punishment, but degrees of reward are always undeserved. God is never saying, you earned this heavenly reward and so therefore I give it to you by merit. There is no merit when it comes to heavenly rewards. These are undeserved, gracious gifts from God where he crowns, people have said He crowns His own graces. In other words, God, He elects us, He regenerates our heart, He gives us the gift of faith, He transforms our life, He gives us a completely new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, He transforms our actions, He makes us careful to walk in His statutes, be able to obey His decrees, and then He turns around to the final judgment, He then examines all of our good deeds that we did by grace alone, and then He says, I'm going to reward those deeds that you did entirely by sheer grace. So our rewards are unmerited, but degrees of punishment are merited. Do you understand the difference? That's an enormous difference between those two different things. Now let me try to make an argument for this from the text. 1 Corinthians 3, 
Now, I will grant you in context, this is referring more to pastors, missionaries, apostles. So it's a little bit more in the, those who are teaching in the church, but I think there's a secondary application for all of us. I'm just going to read some of the verses. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Paul says, He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that's the foundation of Christ, the work that anyone has been, is built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, do you see here two different kinds of Christians, real Christians, who are being described? I know they're both Christians because at the end of this paragraph, they're both saved, right? One person builds on the gospel foundation of the church with substantial biblical doctrine and teaching, gold, silver, and costly stones. And when the purging fire, when the judgment fire comes and the fire goes over that metaphorical building, the whole building stays standing, or at least essentially stays standing, because the foundation was Jesus. That's not going to get burned up. But then the substantial biblical doctrine built on the foundation, the gold, silver, and stones, those don't burn up in the fire because they're, they're right. They're from God. They're, they're true. They, they stay in the fires of judgment. And there's a reward in accordance with the, with the laborer's work. At the same time, let's say that there's a pastor, I mean, I'm sure this, is, this happens. Say there's a, there's a pastor who believes the true gospel, but just has all kinds of strange theological views, and just teaches all kinds of odd, maybe has an odd eschatology view, can't even say the word, an odd end times view, and let's say it's not biblically correct. He just harps on it all the time for his whole, you know, he preaches like every other week about this kind of strange end times view. Let's say he's wrong about it preaches on it for 50 years, writes books about it for 50 years, which I, this, this happens, by the way. And at the end of 50 years, this guy was a sincere believer. He dies in his 80s. He loves the Lord, has the true gospel, but just harped on this weird view that was just wrong the whole time. On the last, on the last judgment, his church, the, the, the building, will have the right foundation of Christ. It will, his foundation of the gospel will sustain him through, he will be saved. But all that weird view he taught that was wrong is going to be wood, hay, and straw. It's going to burn up on the final judgment, and he's going to be saved, but only escaping through flames, right? So both people in this picture are saved, but does one have more reward than the other one? Yes, one has more reward than the other one, but they both are saved. But there's a third person in this chapter that I had often overlooked. Um, look, look with me at verse 16. This is 1 Corinthians 3.16. Look at the third category. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone, this is a very bad pastor here, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, do you hear the third category? This is someone who actually gets the gospel wrong. They got the foundation wrong. They destroy the church with a false gospel and a false Jesus. That person will not be saved on the final judgment. He will not escape through flames. As, no, no, the whole, he destroyed the church with a false foundation. He himself will be destroyed in the final judgment. His works, again, are bearing witness to where he stood in relationship to the Lord Jesus. Turn with me again. There's a lot of flipping. Luke 19. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Now, we, again, we know these stories, but I want to bring out a particular point here. Luke 19 I'm just going to read portions of this account for the sake of time. Luke 19, starting in verse 17. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. 
That represents both salvation and a degree of reward. Ten cities is a degree of reward. Verse 18, and the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Now stop. Do you see both of them enter into salvation in the parable? They're both reigning with the master in, in this state. But does one have more cities than the other that he's ruling over? Yeah, that's degrees of reward, right? So one is over 10 cities, one is over five cities. They're both saved, but they both have differing degrees or levels of responsibility. Now look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Skip down to verse 26. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. And from everyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So you see Jesus again teaching both degrees of reward and also the possibility of someone perishing because their actions prove that they did not truly trust in Him. I just don't turn to this one. In in Romans 2, Paul says, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I think that's one of the clearest passages that teaches degrees of punishment in hell. You are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath. Not everyone stores up the same amount. So those who die in an unrepentant state have stored up a certain degree of God's judgment. And Paul speaks more about that in chapter 2. Let me mention some passages that don't get often mentioned. Uh, If you're you're still in Luke, Luke, flip to Luke 12, verse 47. Luke 12, verse 47. This is going to teach that degrees of punishment has to do in part with our degree of knowledge when we chose to turn against Christ. Look at Luke 12, 47. And that servant who knew, there's knowledge, who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, there's less knowledge, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And I could show you some other texts, but do you see what's going on in that passage? It's referring to Jesus is using a parable to describe those who are lost and he describes two different groups. One is a person who had much fuller knowledge of, in the, to use the parable, God's will, but still rejected God. And another one who had much less knowledge and rejected Christ. In both cases, they perish. But one receives a severe beating and one receives a lighter beating. This, I think, again, going back to the idea of degrees of punishment in hell, and it has to do with the amount of knowledge that we had when we rebelled against it. Just to make this extraordinarily practical, this is, this is not a fun thing to think about. I remember to this day, sitting in Bible class, Bible college, I remember it's like 2007 or 8, Dr. Reese is speaking, 25 students in this room at Tacoa, and uh, Dr. Reese, he and I agreed and disagreed on all kinds of stuff, but he loved the Lord, and Dr. Reese said, listen, he said, I assume all of you in this room are believers, at least you're all professing Christians, you're here at a Bible college, you're clearly a professing Christian, a lot of you are going into the ministry, he said, I assume that that's true, but he said, I will tell you that the person I would least want to be on the day of judgment is someone who has sat under biblical teaching their whole life and has heard all the right answers and knows all the Bible stories and knows all the truths about Jesus 
and yet still hardens their heart against those truths and perishes? He said, because that person, when they stand before God's judgment, will be judged based on what they knew. And my goodness, it will be so much worse of a punishment for the one who knew everything there was to know about the Bible and just said, nah, I'm not interested. Then the person who barely knew the name Jesus and died and perished in their sin, to whom much is given, much will be required. Let's move on to the fourth point of the message. So again, just to review what we've talked about, judgment according to works is for everyone. It's evidence of either salvation or condemnation, and it will, uh, it will uh, influence degrees of reward and punishment in eternity. Point number four, judgment is according to works for God's public vindication, for God's public vindication. Do you remember when Solomon became king? David, I think, had just died. Solomon becomes king. I remember the Lord says, if you could have what you wanted, what would you have? And he said, I, I want wisdom because I'm a child and I've got to rule over this great people of yours. I want wisdom. And the Lord says, because you didn't choose wealth and all these other things, uh, I'm going to give you uh, all, everything else thrown in. I'm going to give you all these other things with it. But I'm going to give you tremendous wisdom. And we know Solomon, his wisdom is what he was known for. But you remember the, the two women early on? They both have a small infant child. Tragically, one of the women, I guess, in the, while sleeping, the child dies, one of the children. The other child uh, is still alive. So the woman in the middle of the night, I guess, suppose, switches the, the children, switches the infants, and she takes the living infant as her own, stealing it from the other and gives the deceased infant to the other woman, the other mother, and they both wake up in the morning, and the mother looks at the baby living and look, looks at the baby who's dead and knows this is not her baby. And she knows the other woman what she's done. And so they go to Solomon. And all the people gather together. There's no, there's no DNA. There's no genetic tests they can do that we could solve that today easily. There was nothing they could do in the year 1000 BC. So what are you going to do? So Solomon, as you know, he says, give me a sword. Okay, cut the baby in half. Give half to one mother and half to the other mother. An outrageous sounding thing. Everyone there probably gasped as he says that. And the, as you know in the story, the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. Now, now, now think about this for a second. When the first mother said, It's fine, give her back to her. Let, her, let the child live. Give it, give it to the other woman. When she said those words, did those words, now listen carefully, did those words earn that child? Did they merit or earn like a paycheck that, that, that baby? No, they did not. They did not earn the child. You know what they did? They were evidence to Solomon that she was the real mother. They were evidence, but they did not earn anything. They're just words. They didn't earn anything. But it was obvious proof. As soon as she said it, obviously that's evidence. That's the real mother. Give the baby to her. Our good deeds will function like that to vindicate God on the final day. What I'm saying is, God is not going to do anything hidden in a corner. God is going to bring out our lives, and He's going to put out our good deeds as believers. Again, we're not perfect, but He's going to put out the transformation He wrought in us. He's going to show it before the watching world, and He's going to say, this person truly knew my son, because look at his actions. The actions did not earn anything, but they're obvious evidence that we've been changed. Just to give an illustration of this, and I, I, I'm stealing this from another pastor. I can't improve on this. I'll close with this illustration. It's the thief on the cross. What, what you often, we may, sometimes we forget this. There's four accounts of Jesus' death. 
all the four gospel authors will include and exclude different details to make different points. Everything they say is true, but sometimes they leave out or include different details to make different points. Well, Matthew and Mark tell us something interesting. Listen to Matthew 27, 44. Listen to this verse. And the robbers, who this plural, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way as the crowd. You know what that means? That means when Jesus was crucified and put on the cross and the two thieves next to him, both of the other thieves were mocking Jesus. But the, the, the thief, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Matthew and Mark tell us that when the crucifixion began around nine o'clock that morning, both of the thieves were mocking Jesus. And Luke alone tells us the amazing transformation. You, you know the story? I'm going to read part of it. One of the criminals, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Where did that come from? An hour ago, he was mocking Jesus with the other guy. Now this guy's rebuking the other thief. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, that thief is, because we all are, he is going to stand before God on the last day. And you know what? I know for a fact, he is, the thief on the cross is going to face God, and he's going to face the judgment according to works. Because everyone is going to face the judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what was due in the body, the deeds that we've done, whether good or evil. And this man, say he's 40 years old. I have no idea how old he was. Let's say he was 40 years old when he died. His whole life had been insurrection and murder and bloodshed and theft. This guy was absolutely wicked. He admits himself he deserves to die. Here he is, standing before the God of the universe, and he's going to face the judgment according to works? This guy was, I mean, I, did, I actually was thinking in terms of calculation. He probably became a Christian close to noon when the lights went out. And he, we know he died uh, close to sunset because they had to break his legs. So he was a Christian for about six hours. That's my best guess. Six to seven hours he was a Christian before he died that sunset. Okay, so he's got six or seven, let's just say seven hours of being a Christian. Forty years old, perhaps. He's at least a full-grown adult. Forty years of life, perhaps. Seven, years, seven hours of being a Christian. He's going to face the judgment according to works? How's it going to go for this guy? So here's the thief on the cross, standing before the Lord Jesus. You got the books that are open, Revelation 20, and you got the book of life. The books are all the deeds of everyone who's ever lived, everything that we've ever done. These massive encyclopedic length books of everything, every careless word is recorded. And I can picture the Lord Jesus picking up this enormous filing cabinet of this man, 40 years, whatever it is, of all this evil and wickedness and sin and depravity. And after that's dealt with, the Lord throws it under the blood of Christ. And then he reaches to the back of the filing cabinet, and there's a tiny single leaf of paper. And the Lord picks it up out of the back of the filing cabinet, and Jesus holds it up to the entire watching universe and says, he confessed his sin. He looked to me for salvation. Jesus, remember me. He lovingly rebuked his fellow thief. And Jesus will hold that up and say, he was real. He trusted in me. His faith was genuine because his life was transformed. And these three little tiny deeds, these three little tiny works didn't earn him anything before God. 
Are you kidding me? Seven hours of hanging on a cross, saying a few things, that earned, that earned nothing. He was not saved by his works, but his works will give absolute clear evidence, as they do to us when we read the text. He was real. He trusted in Jesus. His faith was genuine. He confessed his sin. He turned alone and looked to Christ for salvation, and he knew that he deserved nothing apart from Christ. And Christ said, today you will be with me in paradise. He will pass the judgment according to works. So after all that we've heard today, I hope you hear this. God is going to do this to publicly vindicate his justice. He's going to prove to the whole world, you were real if you knew Jesus. You were real. He will show the transformation, those little moments where you met with the Lord and prayed for someone else and wept over someone's lostness in your life. The Lord will hold that up before the world, not to brag about you, but to say, look what I did. Their faith was genuine. His faith was real. Her faith was real. You will pass the judgment according to works, but that's not what saves you. What saves you is God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our works are the evidence, they're the fruit. Christ's righteousness is the foundation, it's the root, it's the actual reason that we can stand before God on that day. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, for anyone right now within the sound of my voice who does not know you in a saving way, Even as my teacher in college said, the more we know and fail to respond to it in faith, the greater our judgment will be. To whom much is given, much will be required. God, I pray that we would not receive this message in vain. God, help us to approach you not bragging about our deeds. Help us to approach you empty-handed, clinging to the cross. But God, as you transform our life, I pray that there would be real fruit and real evidence of the change that we saw in those six hours of the thief on the cross, that we would truly know that we deserve death for our sin, as he said, that we would lovingly correct others who speak against the gospel of Christ, that we would plead with Christ, that he would remember us when he enters into his kingdom. And God, I pray that you would give us great assurance for those who know Christ, that our faith in you is real, and that our faith would give evidence in that by bearing much fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.